The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. Hi, this is Dudley Hall. We're doing what we used to call the tape of the month. We started in 1974 doing an audio tape and we did uh, cassettes and CDs and whatever. And through the years, people have asked, Hey, where do you do that? What does that look like for you doing one of those tapes like that? And uh, so we decided to video it. So you have the privilege of watching it as well as listening to it. And so it's now called Dudley's Monthly Message. It's been a privilege to, uh, for all these years, since 1974, to come into your life, into your home, into your Bible study, into your spiritual walk with uh, a message of the month. Uh, I have sought through the years to try to hear what God is saying to us as his people at any particular time and to speak to that, speak what God is saying to your life. And I have been so blessed through the years for so many of you saying it has been a help to you, and I'm glad. Uh, And typically what we do is I tell you some of the stuff that's going on that will be helpful to you. One of the things I want to remind you of is that in uh, February... 2017, we're having our annual father-daughter retreat. Uh, This is something we've been doing for over 15 years. It's a fabulous thing. It's one of my favorite things. It's for our daughters, 15 and up. And dads can be whatever age they they are. I'll read you a couple of things here, uh, what what fathers have said about it in the past. It says, uh, I would say that taking my daughter to that weekend retreat was one of the best investments I've made in my daughter's life. Uh, one said, uh, the real benefit has been our spiritual growth. No father should let this opportunity slip through his fingers. It has value beyond measure. Just one from, from the daughters. Uh, this is the best experience you will ever have with your father. You can't miss it. Prepare to be amazed, learn new things, and drive home with your new best friend. So if you qualify, if you know somebody that's uh, in that age group, father, daughter, uh, tell them to go online, kerygmaventures.com, or call the office and get registered for that. The other thing I want to do is uh, just recommend a resource to you. Several years ago, God began talking to me about what it means to live as a son of God. And so I did a study on that, that whole thing and came up with what came to be a little booklet called Orphans No More. This has been used of God to open the eyes of thousands of people. I want to recommend that to you. You can get that also by going online or calling the office. We also have it. I I did it live and you have the DVD of it. You can get that. Recommend it. Uh, No use in living like an orphan when God's made you a son, right? Hey, this month I want to talk to you about something that's really, really important. You'd have to be if you've been keeping up with the election cycle and all of that, you'd, you'd have to be really not paying attention to not have heard the, the phrase identity politics. We, uh, we've talked about how this particular cycle had so emphasized identifying a group of people and getting those people to vote for your side and whatever. And uh, it shows how if you 
do put identity put an identity on people, you can not only manage them but manipulate them. Uh, it, it, it started happening in a very blatant way during the uh, during the primaries, and you remember how uh, candidate Trump would put uh, identifying adjectives to people. There was little Marco, and there was lying Ted, and then there was crooked Hillary, and then the Hillary side uh, never referred to conservatives just as conservatives are are the right, the right as opposed to the left, but uh, they often called uh, racist, bigoted, xenophobic, homophobic, <laughs> misogynistic. So all of these things go together to identify people so that you can either reject them or control them or manipulate them or whatever. So there's a lot into that whole thing. I, I want to talk to you about how identity determines behavior. D uh, d identity always carries with it a lifestyle. It's not, uh, you don't just get an identity and then act differently. You Identity creates a lifestyle. The moment you have an identity, you've just chosen a lifestyle. You live out of who you are, actually, is what we're saying. The strategy of hell, hell knows all about it, because the, uh, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that controls the culture that is not under the lordship of Jesus, really understands the identity thing. And so is always seeking to put an identity on us because once you accept that identity, it determines your lifestyle. So you are a racist or you are a misogynist or you are a, an addict or you are a sinner or you are whatever. Uh, one great illustration of it was, uh, if you remember in six, I know you weren't living in 605, but you remember that in 605 BC, Babylon took over, captured Israel, destroyed the temple and whatever a few years later. But in 605, it took some, some captives from Israel over to Babylon. And Babylon was kind of the, the ultimate representative of the worldly system. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the things over there. And they took the guys that we know as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These were three Hebrew young men with great potential, great leadership. Well, Nebuchadnezzar takes them and gives them a new name, a new identity. So they called Daniel Belshazzar. They called the other three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's interesting, Daniel being the author of that, he, he continued to refer himself as Daniel, but he... Uh, referred to the other three by the name that the Babylonians gave them. Now, why did they do that? Well, they gave them names that, was, that were consistent with the gods that rule their culture, and they were attempting to wipe out their previous identity, thereby wiping out their previous culture, thereby controlling them by giving them a new identity. It's the same thing today. Uh, the way we are confused today in our society of people not knowing how to identify things. It's, it's astounding. We have people who, who are so confused about their identity, they won't even use personal pronouns, he and her, and uh, 
So, so they, they make up pronouns. They take parts of the words and make up pronouns because they, they're not really sure who they are. And so we're, we're fighting over which bathrooms you can use and whatever because we're not really sure if we're male or female or if uh, our sexual preference determines our identity. So, so what a confusing mess we're in. And wh where did it start? Well, it started in the Garden of Eden when God made man and declared that he, uh, he made them male and female in his own image. And they were created by the spoken word of God and then breathed upon by the breath of God, the spirit of God. So mankind is a product of the word of God and the spirit of God giving life. And he, he, is, he is made to enjoy God, to partner with God, etc. But in, the, in Eden, there came another voice, another word, if you will, one representing an alternative view. It was the serpent representing Satan and suggested that God's nature was not good, that God's word could not be trusted, and that Adam and Eve did not need to get their definitions of things from God, but that they were smart enough to do it themselves. You see, God had given Adam and Eve the ability to name the animals. That, that's necessary if you're going to manage the earth. If you are going to be God's representative and manage creation, you've got to know the distinctions in the essence of things. You've got to know the difference in a horse and a cow. You've got to know the difference in a plant and an animal. You've got to know the difference in a mineral and a, and a, and a plant. You've got to know the difference in right and wrong. You've got to know, you've got to be able to name things. And this was something God gave to mankind. But when mankind chose to disobey God, God was cut off from the, the information line. And so mankind now has, still has a responsibility of naming things, but he can only name things based on observation, not on the insight that comes from walking with God. Because now he's alienated from God, hiding behind a bush and then later kicked out of the garden. So man then begins to misname things. And as he misnames things, he, he mismanages things. You've heard me say before, if you, if you name an alligator or a poodle dog, you're just liable to lose a hand or, or a leg or your life. You, you can't afford to misname things. You can't manage it if you do. And so probably the best summary of that whole dynamic is in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is explaining what's happened in history. And he says, when man knew God, he did not glorify him as God, but, but became wise in his own imaginations and became darkened in his understanding. And when he misnamed God as sovereign good God, he then began to misname man and sexuality. And uh, he, he, men began to lust after men and women after women. And, and then later he began to to, to misname creation. He, he called the created the creator, and he called the creator the created. And then later on, he, he misnamed right and wrong. He, he began to believe 
that evil was good and good was evil. And so this is the confusion that happened when man began to misname things because he couldn't identify things properly. Well, when, when we don't know who we are, then we're confused. And then we, we don't know on which basis we decide who we are. Am I, am I what I am based on my past experience? Am I who I am based on some feelings I've had today? If so, my identity changes several times a day. Am, am I who I am based on sexual drives or sexual temptations? If that's who I am, I, I'm, I'm more animalistic than I am human, a dignified human. So on what basis do we identify ourselves? Do we identify ourselves on the basis of, of culture's de de designation of us? If you believe these things, you are this identity. So with, with all of the confusion going on, in order for us to live a lifestyle of flourishing, of joy, of productivity, there's, there's got to be a re-identifying, a, re, a renaming, if you will. And by the way, that's what God has done for us in his rescue in the gospel. So what did God do? Well, because man got messed up because he received the word of a deceiver instead of the word of God, God corrected it. So God sent a new word and we are born of that word. First Peter talks about it. Uh, we are born of the imperishable word or seed of, of God. Listen, listen how he starts off in the book of First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, fading, and kept in heaven for us. Verse 23, I'll skip down just for a little bit. He says, having pure, 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Now, okay, so here's what I want you to see. Uh, here, here's what God did. He counteracted the word that we received from Satan that, that, that caused the confusion about who we are. And then he, he caused us to be born again. We, we started over, if you will. And we, he started over by speaking the word of truth to us. And when we heard it, it regenerated us on the inside. And there is inside of us, this new person, this new creation that God has created. Now that person is to grow up knowing who he, he or she is and then living consistently with it, which means you live by the word of God. And so having been born again uh, and born of this imperishable seed, then we, we hunger for that word. The way we nourish that inner man is by nourishing it with the word that was consistent with the word that created it, consistent with that seed. So 
so we we're born again and and then Peter makes it clear in his whole letter that if you are going to live in a hostile environment, a hostile culture, you better know who you are or the culture will name you. Now, let me tell you about the people Peter was writing to. These were Christians. They had come, they had heard the word of God as filtered through the gospel. They'd heard the story of Jesus and how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's whole word. They had been born of that seed, and now they were scattered throughout uh, a place that we would now call the area of Turkey and surrounding areas. And they were being mistreated by the Jews who said, you're, you're not one of us, you're a sect. And by the pagans who said, you're, you're not Jewish and they're, uh, we don't know who you are. You're not Jewish, you're not, you're not us, we don't know who you are, so we, you're, you're nobody. You're, you're in no man's land with no identity and no value to community, no value to anything. And so these people were living in that time and Peter writes to them to say to them, you've got to know who you are. Otherwise, you won't live according to the, you, you won't live life the way God designed it to be, what he said. So I want to read you the actual text for the day. This is, this is 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can read with me. Otherwise, just listen to this. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that may grow by up into this salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, uh, he's quoting from the Old Testament, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For those who don't believe, uh, he is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Get this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, look at all those definitions of who you are, those descriptions, those identifying marks of who you are. If you know what those mean, then you know what kind of lifestyle you can live out. It, you, you, you live out who you are. So, so let's talk about the first one. He says, you come to the living stone because you yourselves are living stones built on him. Now, in the mind of these people, the stones that were the most precious stones in the world were the stones that made up the temple. The temple was the most precious edifice in the world because it is... It housed the place where God met with man. The religion of the Jews was unique because the other religions had gods who had these altars, but the gods themselves lived in the heavens. 
in, in Israel's religion, God came and lived with the people and met with them at the place of the temple in the Holy of Holies. And so the Holy of Holies was the most special place on the earth. The temple surrounded that. So it was the most precious, holy edifice in the world. The city of Jerusalem contained the temple. Therefore, it was the holy city, the greatest city in the world. The nation of Israel contained Jerusalem. Therefore, it was the holy nation, the greatest nation on the earth. But these exiles, these people that were scattered, they weren't in that place. So they had no identity. I'm sure they would think, man, I wish I wish I were back in the temple and whatever, you don't go and be somebody, but we're, we're nothing. And if you think you're nothing, then you live like nothing and you, you have no purpose. You have no meaning. You have, uh, have no sense of value. And that if you have no sense of value, there's no sense of right and wrong. There's no sense of morals. So, so he's giving them these markers of identity so that they will know this, this life they've been given. So, he calls them living stones in the temple of God. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this temple thing is really, really big. All the, all the, the great religions had their temple. And you remember how David in the Old Testament, King David, he didn't like it that all the other religions had their temples, but uh, Israel didn't have a temple for their God. Their God lived in a tent just like them with badger skins and all that. He said, that's not right. We need a temple because the temple, it shows off the majesty of your God and it shows how special he is. And and uh, ours, ours doesn't show much of anything here. So I want to build a temple for God. And God said, no, you, you don't get to do it. But he let Solomon do it. And do you have you read about what kind of temple Solomon built? It's unbelievable. The gold and the silver and the, the precious jewels and everything built in the thing. It was, it, it's indescribable in its beauty and its majesty. And, uh, and they, they took great joy and delight and, and boasted in this great temple that they had because the temple is special. It's the holiest place on the earth. It displays the glory of God. It matches his splendor. It, uh, it, it makes anybody who goes there precious. The Jews look forward to getting to make a, a trip to to Jerusalem. They sang songs all the way to it. it. It was just fabulous just to get to go there, to be in, to be around the whole area because the temple was so great. Well, uh, you can imagine the devastation then when Babylon took over Israel and destroyed the temple. I mean, totally destroyed it. Took the gold and the silver and the precious uh, ornaments in it and the vessels in it, took it, took it into captivity. And, and so Israel was totally destroyed. Uh, and and their their sense of who they were was was gone, so no wonder they wept. So they longed to come back and rebuild the temple. Well, when Cyrus allowed them to come back, at least a remnant of them came back, and they worked on the temple, but it was pretty shabby. They they didn't have the resources to make it like Solomon did, so it was a, it was a temple, but it it wasn't all that great. Uh, Herod in the time of Jesus, want for political reasons, rebuilt the temple, and he put a lot of money in it. And he made it really, really something. So much so that the disciples, you, you, you remember this from reading in Matthew, the disciples one day said to Jesus, have you noticed how great the temple is? Isn't it fabulous? And, and look at the sun shining on it. it. It is the greatest wonder in the world. And that's when Jesus said to them, 
Not one stone of it will be left on, on top of another in this generation because you've made the temple God instead of God, God. And you think that the temple is your security and it's not. They idolize the temple. So I'm just trying to show you how important the temple, the concept of the temple and the existence of the temple was in the minds of these people. And for Peter to come along and say, you, you scattered exiles out there that nobody thinks is worth anything and you don't know who you are. You're not Jew. You're not, you're not pagan. We don't know. You're sect. You're some kind of a, of a group that we don't know what your identity. Let me tell you who you really are. You are the temple of the living God. You are part of the holiest place on earth. You are displaying the glory of God. It is you that God has chosen to make the center of the city and the center of society and the center of the world. You are what the nations will come to because you are one of the stones built into this living temple. So for him to say that was just uh, is radical. And for them to believe it is even more radical. So, so he's calling them living stones built on the living, the central cornerstone, Jesus, the one who was rejected by his own people. And so he's saying to them, don't, don't think it's strange that you're going to be rejected because Jesus, if the cornerstone was rejected, probably the other stones are too. So don't be upset about that because from God's perspective, you are the temple. He goes on to use other words to describe what, what, what all that means. He said, you're a, you're a priesthood, uh, you're a spiritual priesthood. You are the select of God to, you're the, you replace the, the Levites or fulfill the Levites in that you now make spiritual sacrifices. Why spiritual sacrifices? Because there's never a need for another kind. Jesus is the final sacrifice that all the Old Testament pointed to. Never has to be another animal killed. Never has to be another sacrifice made. Spiritual sacrifices that come from your relationship with Jesus. What are they? Praise, thanksgiving, honoring Jesus, talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. That is the sacrifice because he made the ultimate sacrifice. So you're a priesthood. So if anybody asks you who you are, you can tell them I'm a priest. You say, really? Yes, you are. Made so by God. You are, uh, he, he said, you are a chosen generation. Israel had been chosen by God. God says, now you are the people of God. You, not Israel, not based on ethnicity, not ge geography, not based on the bloodline of Abraham, based on your faith in the seed of Abraham, it was Jesus himself. You are the chosen generation. You are those that God has picked to be the center of society. You are those that God has picked to be the people that display the excellencies of God so that people from every nation could know how great God is, how merciful God is. You are a chosen generation. You're a holy nation. God does have preferred nations. Well, he only has one. He has a preferred nation. And for those of you who you might hope that it would be the United States. No, he does. He loves us, but the preferred nation is the people of God. Those who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ 
and they are his people. A lot of those are in the United States, a lot of them in the other countries too. But that's just, that's the holy nation. That's the set apart nation. That's the nation that God said will be different and distinct. They have a particular role. Their particular role is to display the glory of God. It will be what they do that will determine the success of all society around them. The whole city will be affected by what they do. The whole state will be affected. The whole nation will be affected. The whole world will be affected by these people because they are the center of everything. And he's saying to these Christians, you're part of that. You're, you are the chosen people. You are the holy nation. You are the people possessed by God. You know what that means? You're the people that God made a covenant with. And he said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And that means I protect you. I provide for you. Uh, I, uh, I stand for you against all, all others. And you say, yeah, but that's only if you, like, if you obey. That's what he said to Israel. Yeah, but in the new covenant, he said, I, I will be your God and I will make sure that all the stipulations are kept because I will send myself, my son, and he will come as a man and he will live up to all those stipulations. Therefore, I can go ahead and fulfill my role as being God and do every one of those promises because, because Jesus for you has lived up to the conditions. That, that's, that's what he's saying to them. You are God's new people. You are God's final people. You don't share your glory with Israel, Old Testament Israel, or any political entity. You don't share it with, with any other. That's, that's your inheritance. That's your imperishable inheritance. So you're a holy nation, and you have a purpose. And that purpose is to worship. The purpose is to live your life in worship. Now, he goes on a couple of other things here I think is important. He said, at one time, oh, I love this. He says, he, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think in Peter's mind, he's saying, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to Israel was he called them out of Egypt into the promised land. He said to the exiles in Babylonian, you were called out of captivity in back to Jerusalem. Here he's saying, it's not locale. It's not, it's not geography. He's calling you out of spiritual darkness where you didn't know who you were into the light where you are trusting the, the definitions of God. So he says, at one time you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Uh, this was taken out of Hosea when God had broken the cut. I mean, excuse me, when Israel had broken the covenant so severely that God said, uh, "You know, I'm I'm getting a divorce from you. I'm, I'm I'm rejecting you." But He made the promise: those who are not a people, those who are rejected, I'll make my people. Now He's saying that applies to you, Gentiles. It applies to you, to you no-name people. It applies to you who who have have nothing to offer God. You, you don't have a covenant. You, you don't have Abraham as your father. You, you don't have any religious background. You have nothing. But I have made you my people. It says, at one time you did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. What does that mean? Israel received mercy. That meant that God 
treated them with his mercy so that that they could be the template, if you will, for the rest of the world to see how merciful he was. Let me tell you what mercy means to us. How much mercy did God show us? He forgave our sin. Forgiveness is the epitome, the essence of, the, the foundation upon which all other blessings come. God has forgiven our sin. Sin has been made a non-issue for his people. Jesus became sin. The wrath of God came upon it. When Jesus died, he died as sin. Sin died. It lost its power. It lost its ability to separate us from God. It was made a non-entity, a non-issue with God. Because of that, we have been freed from guilt and shame. We don't have to walk with it anymore. We don't have to fear the, the other shoe is going to fall. We don't have to walk around with a sense of disqualification and condemnation. We don't have to walk around feeling that we have let God down, that we've messed up so badly that we can never get anything. We, we don't have to do that so we can worship. We can come boldly into the presence of God and worship and thank him without thinking so much about our sin. Our, our worship is not about, oh God, please forgive me my sin. I plead, I beg, I, I bring I bring repentance. I bring sacrifices. Please, please, what might I have to do? No, no, that's not, that's, not, that's not New Testament worship. We come to worship God with gratitude, thanksgiving, exaltation, uh, because our guilt and shame has been dealt with by the blood of Christ. So having been forgiven, we're freed from, from guilt and shame. Having been forgiven, we're free from fear. We're free from the fear of uh, let's see, the fear of loss, the fear that we won't have enough. And therefore, we got to work and we got to work and we, 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 have to, we have to work harder than we wanted to work. We have to hate work we have to, and because we get, it's all dependent upon us to produce it. What if you were freed from that because you had a father who said, I'll meet your needs, but I do want you working because work is who you are. I made you as a worker and I want you to work creatively and I want you to discover the beauty and the resources that are in this created this creation and I want you to develop it and use it for the benefit of others and for the glory of God so that your work was something you actually enjoyed doing and you didn't work for money, but you actually worked for glory. You worked for, for the glory of God. If you're freed by being forgiven, that's true. Uh, it also frees you to uh, frees you from punishment. If you if you don't fear that you're going to be punished for making some mistake or whatever, then you can risk. You can risk trusting God. You can risk moving out. You can risk going into into new areas because it's you're not afraid the other shoe is going to fall at, at any moment. If if you're freed from from by forgiveness, you're you're freed from the fear of rejection. So you you can love unconditionally. You, you, you don't you don't have to hold back, afraid somebody's going to hurt you, reject you. Just go ahead and love them, and love them eternally. Love them the way God loves them. If you're freed, if you're forgiven, you're freed from from want. Therefore, you can give generously. You you can't out you can't give away all that God has, and you are His instrument of giving, and you give out of His resources instead of out of your meager resources. If you're freed from from fear, you're freed from the fear of obscurity. 
That's a, a lot of us have that fear. Therefore, we can't boast in other people's achievements. And so we never brag on folks, boast on folks, praise them or whatever, because, oh, there's only so much of that honor to go around and I need it for myself. And if I brag on him, then people are going to look at him and they won't be looking at me. And if they're looking at him and not looking at me, I'm just a nobody. What am I, chopped liver? So I can't, I can't do all that. Wouldn't it be great if we understood who we are? We are forgiven. We are children of God, rescued of God, living stones in his temple, special people chosen by him to display his glory. And, be, and, and, and we have received mercy. And having received mercy, we are free. We can live like forgiven people. Now, it's interesting that Peter then, the rest of the letter of 1 Peter, is him telling how you live out this identity in a culture that doesn't get it. And, and how you relate to government, how you relate to work, how you relate to your husband, your wife, your children, how, how you relate as a worker. How, how, do you re, how do you relate and all that? What about when you suffer? Well, if you realize that you, your purpose on this earth is to display his glory, you're a temple. And that's what temples do. If you realize that's what your purpose here is, and God says, okay, the way I can do that through you is put you through some persecution, through some suffering, because in your suffering, people are going to see the glory of God, and they're going to see a life that handles circumstances different than their life. Therefore, they're going to, they're going to glorify God in your behalf. You can say, hey, great, that's good. Uh, I, I just want to make sure I'm not suffering from my own sin. I want to suffer so that my purpose is fulfilled, that I'm doing what temples do, which is display the glory of God. So he deals with all those issues in the rest of the book, which, by the way, next month we'll probably get into some of those. But for this month, it's really important that you know who you are. And let me tell you how you get there. Do you believe that God exists? He said, of course I do. Do you believe that he's good? Yes. Do you believe that he has spoken? Yes. Then if you believe he's spoken, then find out what he has said and believe it. Believe that. And then you're going to stop all the other conversation that tells you who you are based on the wrong kind of evidence. You are who God says you are. Find out what that is. Don't believe anything else. Don't speak anything else. Don't accept anything else. And as you do, you'll find the lifestyle that God uh, has for you. And your lifestyle will be consistent with your identity. Aren't you glad that God loved you enough to name you? Listen to his name and live by it. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.